Clear. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really noise. good background noise yeah right. this is this is the best seat in the house that's right we got sky riders now we got sky riders, we got sky riders now. now does that say you cap i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> and you're in sight clear land turkey national ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and delta Anyways, I hear you now. So, should we do this thing? Uh, only if there's a list. <laughs> and if there's not, yeah, I don't know. We're screwed. <laughs> if there's not a list, we'll be here all morning. Yeah, let me refresh that just for grins. And thanks for joining us, folks. We'll see you again next week. <laughs> yeah. Oh, everybody okay? Everybody got their coffee? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, I got two big so insulated mugs and... Hell, we got up at six and trotted the dog around the yard and had one cup of coffee headed out the door uh, six blocks to the local neighborhood uh, cafe. Mm-hmm. Grabbed a nice big breakfast and was back at the house by quarter after seven. Wow, that went way too fast. That's that's a little that's a little troubling that someone would be that perky this early in the morning. I don't know. What do you think, Jeb? I I am um, not uh, a morning person. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, but here it is before noon, and you have figuratively turned the key. Figuratively. Figuratively. Here's um, what I want. Yeah. I, I am. I am. You know, and I am up at taking nourishment. I've been up since seven, and and uh, I'm slowly getting caffeinated here and getting my news intake and and. Uh, this kind of thing. So yeah, I, okay. It's it's Saturday morning, and and uh, I was kind of up late last night, and uh, you know uh, that kind of thing. So you know, it's it's um, by the time this podcast is over, I will be raring to go. For raring to go. Well, let's see if we get the process begun here. Um, David, I have a question for you. Yes, sir. So yes. so go back, thinking back to your uh, hang gliding days. Uh, did you ever get receive launch whatever with a with a cable tow? Is that what they call it? You know, where they oh tow towing yeah yeah towed, uh, towed behind uh, uh, boats, towed behind Volkswagens. All right, uh, towed behind a ground stationary winch. Winch. That's the one I want to hear about. How does that work? Tell me a little bit about that. Well, did winches on on uh, on the boats and the Volkswagen too? The, the, except they work the opposite way. Uh, the ground-based winch we yeah. laid out about a mile of uh, of line. No, not really a mile. Yeah, really about a mile. Okay, and then what? And it started to take up the line. The winch did uh, accelerating, and I ran through the rope, dragging me. The winch dragging me forward uh, about three or four steps, and got airborne, and then. Climbed as the rope got shorter until I was at about 2,200 feet, uh, and then released the line, and a little parachute popped out to keep the rope from following falling to the ground faster than the winch could play it in. Mm-hmm. Where was this? At a field or an airport? Or it was in a big farm field. So this field was 
a mile long in some dimension. Uh, it was, uh, yeah. It, actually, we were towing across the across a diagonally, but if I remember right, it was about a hundred and sixty acre plot. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Hmm. Hmm. And and is this a, is this a tricky way of launching, or is this is it? How does this compare to anything else? And towing used to be tricky, trickier than it is now because the early towing we did, they actually had the bridle attachments hooked to the wing itself. Yeah. And that presented some control problems because of the variable position of CG and center of pressure on a flexible wing. Uh, so somebody figured out that if you put the towing point on the pilot's harness and towed off the, the, the pilot, then it pulled through the same hang point that the pilot was attached to anyway. It made the glider much closer to normal to control for the pilot, uh, made the whole thing more uh, more predictable uh, and, and less frenetic for the first 50 or 60 there's a, feet. There's a video out there somewhere of, of uh, two guys trying to start a motorcycle by towing it. Uh-huh. And, and they wrap the rope around the rider and not the motorcycle. <laughs> so I don't know how comfortable I'd be having the, the tow line wrapped around me. And this me. year's Darwin Award goes to. Darwin Award goes to. Yeah. Um, um, so, so, David, it did, yeah, actually worked it, very well because we, we, had a, we had a sliding bridle that came off of our harness. Yeah. Hang on, David. Jeb, the motorcycle thing. What were you going to say? The, the, yeah. The things we do to get airborne. Yes, you know? I know. Right. I know. Yeah. So, David, the so the the uh, you, you did it from a winch. You've done it behind a boat with a tow line. You've done it behind a what did you say the other one was? Like a, well, a vehicle, Volkswagen pickup yeah. truck. The other the, when the winch was mobile, like on a boat or a, a ground vehicle, we started out with a shorter line. And the vehicle would drive down the road or across the field, and the line would play out. So you climbed higher. It's like running across the field with a kite and letting the line go. Oh, out. I see. Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. And that was a little more. Uh, that that was a little calmer, and and I like that a little better than being pulled up by the stationary mm-hmm. wind. I seem to remember seeing at an air show some one time somebody. I don't know if it was a hang glider or a glider glider, uh, being towed by a truck, of you know, like a pickup truck, uh-huh. and but not releasing, just kind of doing a circle, doing a holding pattern kind of thing, where the truck would get to the end of the runway and then kind of slow down enough to make a U-turn and then go back, reverse direction, and go the other way on the runway. And, and the hang glider managed to make the turn at the other end and stay on, on the line. And Does this ring any bells? Have you seen this? Is this? Uh, I have not seen that. Is this that's t- not something I'd want. To, I'd want to see it before I ever dreamed of trying. Yeah, I would think that the reverse direction thing would be a bit of a trick. Anyways, um, all the, all now, now a lot of places that fly hang gliders do aero towing, just like sailplanes. Well, yeah. Let's come back to that, Jeb. You were going to say something. I, I was going to simply say that all this talk of the locations and times and ways that Dave has done it is is rather sobering. <laughs> I, I thought I was leading an exciting life, but I guess I guess not. No, yeah, okay. No, oh no, see, straight line, straight line. Um, David, you were going to say what I, I you were about to answer the question that I was about to ask, which is: so have you ever gotten a, a tow towing type launch behind another aircraft? Yeah, in sailplanes, uh, but non hang gliders. 
Okay. But my wife has. Annie has done the uh, uh, arrow toe uh, at the Wallaby Ranch north of uh, Winter Haven, Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really slick setup. Uh, the glider is set in a little three-wheel dolly. The dolly is shaped like a triangle. It's got a place for the base tube to go and a spot to in the back that holds the uh, keel. Keep it from falling forward or back. Uh, you get hooked in. Uh, the tug rolls down the runway, takes up the slack kind of slow, and then accelerates. It lifts off just after the glider lifts off. And when the glider lifts off, it just leaves that little dolly rig behind it close to a stop on the ground. And then they tow you up to the altitude you want. Uh, the towing point on is, again, on the hang glider pilot. Mm-hmm. Now, but this is the, the the towing aircraft was also began on the ground, right? And, and right. It, you know, a la, gr- like obviously a, a glider, right? Yeah, of course. Right, doing a sailplane. But how about with the towing airplane never coming back down to the ground? The towing airplane just circling, trailing a tow line, and 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 kind of grabbing on to the towed airplane or aircraft as it passed uh, by. Only what do you think, James Bond? Only if you're James Bond. It works for for banners. They 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 they've done that, you know, where they snatch stuff up off the ground by a hook grabbing it, uh, kind of like they pick up uh, uh, banners on towing. You don't take off generally with the banner dragging right. the airplane. Right. Snatch it on the way up. Uh, doing that with another aircraft is, I guess, it's possible. I've just not seen that as a part of recreational flying mm-hmm. well now, as you well know the reason I'm, i've gotten into this whole thing is because we're looking at a story here or we've seen a story recently about how uh some of the uh the you know futuristic uh, aviation folks are toying with the idea of launching airliners this way with some sort of tow kind of situation and yeah. and and if if I'm reading this article right, they're they're toying with the idea of having an orbiting aircraft that that every now and then comes past the uh, the uh, runway and somehow grabs an airplane in order to tow it into the air. What do you think? This is is this going to work? Is this conceivable? Silence. I got a lot of questions on how that would work. Uh-huh. Uh huh. First off, the, the, the story that I saw talked about the towing aircraft being electric, uh, which is is fine and well. Uh, electric motors can be made really powerful and really compact if you've got enough voltage and, 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 and amperage to s- turn it and sustain it uh, through what you need to do. And that's all supposed to reduce noise and pollution. That's all well and good. Where I'm a little unsure is you're going to have to have a hell of a tow vehicle to pull up a wide-body aircraft. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure how that's going to work getting the non-moving on-the-ground airliner hooked in and accelerated to takeoff speed uh, behind a, an airborne vehicle without slowing that airborne vehicle down to the point where it doesn't fly. Uh that's that's going to be 
immensely challenging. Yeah, yeah. So I'm 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 kind of rereading this article here. I guess maybe the 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 orbiting aircraft idea is mostly for picking up cargo, apparently, without having to bother with the uh, annoyance of actually landing for it. Well, now that's been done off and on for. Yeah, that's been done. Yeah, Jeb, you were gonna say something? Yeah, the, the one of the concepts here that would seem to be um, very workable and, and um, <clears throat> just just waits to be implemented is this so-called space elevator. Well, you, yeah, you know, you you have a you have a, a point on the ground uh, and a a, a geostationary um, satellite or or <clears throat> ship or, or station or something like that. And you physically link the two with uh, with a cable, right? Um, and you know it's going to be you know some some very sturdy stuff. And and you literally you put a motor on on one end or the other end or both ends or whatever, and and you loop the cable around and, and basically you latch something onto it and turn the motor on and zoom the thing goes up to the space station. Right, but that's um, yeah, you know, and that's you know that would seem to be physically uh, and, and technically doable. Uh, the thing that I, I have an issue with here, um, uh, well, there's a lot of issues here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a lot going on in this proposal, uh, not least of which is uh, uh, the vagaries of weather and wind. Um, there is, um, you know, the, the, the safety issues and, and just the, um, the procedures and mechanisms and everything else associated with, with clamping or tying an airplane onto a cable and then you know lifting it off the ground and, and taking it to to uh, to altitude and then and only then uh, is it uh, uh, released from this cable and then uh, free flying. Um, I don't know. We can dream, but it just it just seems like much ado about nothing. And the article says, well, you know, it costs a Boeing seven thirty seven consumes about five thousand pounds of jet fuel. In an average takeoff and climb the cruise altitude, fuel cost is $2,000 at current jet fuel prices compared to projected $650 for an electric takeoff. That may all well may be all well and good, and, and those numbers, I have no way of assessing them. But the flip side of which is <clears throat> there's a lot of other costs involved here, too, that um, will increase the overall cost of this, this so-called electric takeoff. I don't think the juice is worth the squeeze. Um, there's there's too many people, too many other variables involved here, um, and um, um, one of these little things goes wrong, and, and we've got a we've got a whole different set of issues. Uh, right now, we have uh, basically an autonomous um, self-launching vehicle. It needs um, the same amount of runway uh, to take off that it roughly the same amount of runway to take off that it needs to uh, uh, land. Um, the the landing and the uh, I'm sorry the takeoff can can be scheduled and conducted at the um, um, convenience if you will of the captain um, the weather and, and these other kinds of variables may or may not impact that it may or may not the uh, this electric takeoff uh, procedure uh, there's always the issue then of course of well, let's say we get this thing about you know six or eight thousand feet off the ground and there's a problem with the orbiting aircraft, or there's a problem with the cable, or there's a problem, you know, something else. The, the jet being towed to altitude um, doesn't have enough 
altitude or doesn't have certainly does not have enough airspeed to start uh, sustained flight on its own. What you going to do? Who are you going to call? Um, there's all kinds of problems with this. Yeah, well, the glider guys practice that all the time, right? Rope break procedures are routine. Yeah, yeah, and a glider can can easily and safely fly. Yeah, well, no, the Gimli glider guy showed that it all works, right? Those guys have inordinately light wing loadings, right? Uh, and don't approach the speeds that this would have to to go. Uh, you know, and I look at this, I see their theory for solving the uh, how do you capture it and, and lift it without dragging the airplane down. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, sure. All uh, right. It, I can see how this morning is going to go. You guys are taking me way too seriously here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the idea. I want to see him. I want to see him make it work on a on, on the scale of a 172. Right. And if they right. could make it work on the scale of a 172. Then, it, it, like most stuff in aviation, then it becomes a matter of well, engineering the, the, the proportions differently to make it work on the larger scale. Well, well and, then, and, go ahead, Jim. Okay. I was going to say, another, another issue here, if this works so, if this works so well, um, why don't we maybe try it with the military and, and aircraft carriers? Because there's an application where we're, we're using catapults and we're doing all this other stuff to get um, jets off of... Uh, off of aircraft carriers, maybe this should be uh, the way they did in the future. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, no, here's what I propose. David, you say, you say we need a small-scale proof of concept. So here's here's what I propose. Uh, in a couple of weeks, the three of us will be all together down there at Hidden River, all right, where we have a relatively short runway, we have a pickup truck, and we have a debonair. So we could run some tests. <laughs> the local constabulary has already been alerted to the fact of your, your pending arrivals. Yes. Um, the... Um, uh, I think I'm going to be fresh out of rope and cable. So, okay. uh, yeah. <laughs> all right, well, we'll have to we'll have to make a visit to the local uh, Home Depot. And, and, on the on the flip side, I definitely see a sci-fi mini series in in this uh, uh-huh. using something that plays off space tethers and space elevators. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, you know. Uh, space underwear, space boudoirs, space uh, see, shoes, second floor on the space elevator. This would be the latest in the series. It'd be Airplane Three, be, you know, space toe gone bad, something like that, right? Welcome, folks, to episode 227 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast. We are recording this episode at a somewhat unusual time, as you may or may not be able to tell. Uh, it's, it's, it's Saturday morning, March 12th, 2011, and uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar, a couple good fr- good friends. Easy for you to say. Yeah, well, you know, the very thought of saying that out loud just kind of freaked me for a second. <laughs> say, it, say it three yeah. times. It's on the, it's on the record, man. You, yeah. You've done it. You've said it. I it have. will live with you for the rest of your life. I have. Uh, that's Jeb Burnside. He's talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How are you doing this morning? I'm better. Thank you. Yeah, I know uh, this is a little early for you. I thank you for yeah. getting up. And uh, Well, I, it's, it's, I've had some awkward um, uh, scheduling issues this week, and... Uh, um, you know, still trying to get back on a sleep schedule, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but this is this is good. We're 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 fine. We're fine. And and the fact that and the fact that Saturday morning is followed by it, it follows Friday night has nothing to do with your state of mind this morning. It has absolutely nothing. To absolutely do with nothing no, to do with it. Yeah. Of course yeah. not. And also here in the virtual hangar is Dave Higdon joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Hey, David, how are you this morning? Doing doing very well, thank you. Doing very well. Yeah. 
Uh, is spring taking hold out there? Well, it's trying to. Uh, you know, it got to to about 70 yesterday. Whoa, okay. Uh, and then went down to a near 30 last night and is already feeling like it's back up in the 50s. So, uh, yeah, and what? Daylight savings time starts this weekend. Yeah, so. tonight, tomorrow morning. Yeah. That means tomorrow it'll already be an hour later at this time. I know. Ooh, did right. we start this at the right time? I don't know, huh? Yeah. The other question I had for you, David, is did you ever get to fly the Taylor craft again? Uh, no, I have not. Uh, ben and I have not been able to uh, coordinate his free time with my lack of free time. Well, actually, his lack of free time, his lack of being at home some, because he's a, he's a, a DER and a DAR and does freelance engineering consulting in aviation so he's very often somewhere else a der a dar is a daughter of the american revolution which i'm guessing he's not so oh it's uh, also a designated airworthiness representative ah okay and the other one was a der designated engineering representative got it got it okay it means he basically has the authority of an faa engineer uh to sign off on work, and you, and you think you're going to spoof this guy into into thinking that you know how to fly this uh, tail dragger? We've flown together before. Oh, uh, okay, so so he's been spoofed. Before. He knows what he's getting into. Yeah, now he okay. didn't let me put much of my hands on his uh, freshly restored Cessna 195 when we went tooling around it on a Independence Day last year. Uh, but that was okay, as I was. We were amidst about a dozen other airplanes flying low over a Independence Day parade at a couple of little towns, and uh, my my job is, was to be spotter. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. There, there's the steerman. Don't hit the steer. Yeah, he's okay. okay we're going past. Yeah, watch that one. Watch the Aronka. Uh, yeah, okay. He's okay now. Uh, all, that, all that time over Lake Parker has has served you well. Oh yeah, pays off really good. Okay, three o'clock, uh, two hundred feet above. You, you you got a V tail going by. Yeah, that's the leprechaun day. Yeah, don't worry about it. He's clear. You know what? I want to ask you a question about that, actually. But first of all, let me say, uh, and I am Jack Hodgson, and I'm coming to you this morning from high atop Lookout Point in the where it's probably not going to get to 70 today, but we're really excited about the fact that it's going to get into the 50s today, Nottingham, New Hampshire. Um, so. Wow. Uh, it's, above freezing and in March. That yeah. Is well, you know, and, and I perhaps am the only person in the county who pays attention to such things, but it's actually been above freezing now for getting on 50 consecutive hours, um, which is... <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I know. Laugh. I, 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 was, yeah, I, was, I was expecting to hear the word days. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> laugh, laugh all you but want, I, I, alligator I, boy. All right, but he, it's... He won't be able to say that until sometime in July. <laughs> no, no, no. It's really, it's been warm for quite... Yeah, 50 days, exactly. Um, so 50 hours. But uh, this is actually a good thing. This is one of the really you know great milestones of spring up here in the Northeast, for me anyways, because it means that the snow has been melting 24 hours a day for uh, 
for some time now. It's actually been raining too, so the melt, the snow melt is progressing very, very nicely here. And, How much uh, snow do you have on the ground up there? Uh, now we have relatively little. There's lots of bare ground now, and uh, mostly the snow that's remaining now is snow that had drifted into piles or had been plowed into piles. Um, most of the sort of you know natural snow cover has melted away now, and uh, um, we're getting there. We're getting there. You know. And uh, right. we're coming up on spring break. That's when it really gets starts to get warm here. So, um, but that's my situation up here. David, you mentioned something a second ago um, that's not on the list, but um, it, it's a subject that I've been following in another forum. Um, there's a uh, there's a, an aviators a pilots forum. Uh, it's actually an email list for people for pilots who go to the Burning Man festival um, out in the Nevada desert um, every uh, Labor Day. And one of the things they've been talking about lately is trying to improve the quality of the uh, communication between aircraft and ground personnel so that they can avoid incidents and kind of just keep things flowing smoothly. And they've gotten into a big discussion on uh, on the question of what's the legal way to communicate between aircraft and ground personnel and do you need radio licenses and who is qualified to give directions and things like that and and you were just describing a situation similar to that how does do you know anything about how that's really supposed to work and how does it work in your experience well there's uh, i don't i'd have to go look them up but there's a couple of frequencies i believe in the airband that uh, are designated for uh, air-to-air conversation uh, and none of them are 121.5 folks yeah, uh, right. that is not channel 19 yeah no CB radio right uh, but uh, you, and, and you no longer need a station license for the aircraft radio unless you're going to fly outside the United States right but that presumes that you are operating the aircraft I always thought you know is that, that that's what made the radio operation legal was that you were operating an airworthy air you know licensed aircraft um, that, that's true yeah, uh, yeah. Well, because well, the buzz always was that those of us who used our handheld transceivers standing on the ramp you know like to get the ATIS or call the gas guy or whatever strictly speaking were violating the FCC rules. I don't think you are no. if you've got the, the uh, user's license. Uh, okay. Right. Jeb, you were going to say? Certainly anyone can can get an ATIS with a handheld. Yeah, because uh, you're just listening. Without, without right. transmitting, right. And, and that obviously doesn't violate any FCC rules. Um, the FCC has you know, allocated, as David correctly points out, uh, certain frequencies for... Um, uh, I think uh, aeronautical um, services or something like that. Um, so you have uh, basically your your allocated unicom frequencies. Um, depending on, uh, and I, I don't know, there's some threshold. I don't know if it's uh, uh, the simple fact of of intending to regularly transmit uh, or um, you know, being in a in a business or or being the official unicom frequency or something like that, I'm not sure exactly what that threshold is. But once that threshold is crossed, I believe you do need a station license for a ground station. Right. Um, now, if it's um, um, in, in in that case, I think you know the the Burning Man people. Uh, I think it would be to their benefit, um, technically, legally, and otherwise, to simply go ahead and get an assigned frequency. Uh, for aeronautical services at Burning Man, whether it's 22.8 or, or, or right. something like that. Who knows? 
Um, but it, sh it shouldn't be all that difficult to do. There are temporary control towers established all the time with, with, with temporary frequencies. Right. Uh, it, it's not rocket science. Yeah, and they were talking about that. The other part of the problem for them, and I, I sort of have a, a personal experience with this kind of thing too, was sort of a partially a liability question and partially a sort of pilot and command question about, you know, so if you've got a, a spotter on the ground who is talking to airplanes in the pattern or, or taxiing on the ground or whatever, um, you know, obviously the pilot in command of the aircraft is in command of the aircraft. There's a lot of question about, you know, giving directions and things like that. You know, they're not ATC, right. they're something else. No thoughts on that, David. How did it work when you were so a minute ago? You were talking about a situation, as I understood it, where you were sort of a spotter on the ground. Is that what you were saying? No, I was a spotter in the right seat. Oh, okay. Uh, well, kind of still. That's why I wasn't flying the airplane. Was I was watching, uh, and we were coordinating with the other aircraft that were in our uh, formation group, who had radios. Not all of which did. Right. Uh, but were they all airborne as well? They were. Ah, and I okay. was just looking uh, up the question uh, and found something at a place called uh, radioreference.com. Mm -hmm. Your complete reference source for all things, uh, uh, personal transmitters and, and, and so forth. And the question was put up. Uh, this is dated October of 08. Uh guy was under the assumption that you needed a license to operate an airband transceiver, went to the FCC uh, uh, license area, tried to apply according to the FCC, a license isn't required. Hmm. Uh, one of the people on the forums answered, no, it's not anymore. Uh, you can purchase a transmitter. You can legal use of marine transceivers and aircraft transmitters within the continental U.S. for those uses. doesn't require uh, okay, uh, well, that's, good. that's good to know. Hmm. So um, uh, the liability issue has yeah. always been out there. Okay, yeah. and I, I, it's funny um, here at, at, at the uh, Venice, Florida airport, um, which is besieged by by the local community on, in, a, in a variety of different ways. Um, <clears throat> the um, the AWOS, uh, they have an AWOS uh, broadcast on a discrete discrete frequency, like you know so many other AWOSs around the country. Um, and something went in it several months ago, and it stopped transmitting, or it lost its certification, or, or something. I don't recall the exact details. Um, so it hasn't been transmitting. So inbound uh, aircraft, um, you know, you want to try to figure out which way the wind is blowing, and, and you know, is there, uh, uh, you know, what's the runway condition, or is it, you know, this kind of thing, um, altimeter, whatever. Uh, you don't have that information anymore. So there is a Unicom frequency at Venice, and um, you can call the Unicom frequency, and uh, what you'll get in a way of an airport advisory from that Unicom operator is basically uh, the last aircraft to, to land or depart use runway X, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, it's informative, but it doesn't really tell you anything. It right. doesn't really tell you what you want to know. Well, will they give and, you, and, like, wind information? No. No. Um, they won't tell you if there's anybody in the pattern. They won't tell anybody taxiing out. Um, da -da 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 -da. It's, it's strictly, you know, kind of a self-announced thing. And, of course, being a non-towered airport, um, you know, uh, it is what it is. Um, and I asked somebody about that 
the other day, someone who's, who's relatively knowledgeable about Minister Airport operations, and the response basically was, um, yeah, they're, they're so afraid of, of liability there that the uh, Unicom operator is, is only allowed to respond within a certain set, uh, set of parameters. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that's, of course, um, the, 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 the age in which we live. Um, I've, I've been, you know, I won't say I've been a Unicom operator in the past, but I've certainly, um, when I was working as a line boy in an airport, I've certainly, you know, picked up the Unicom mic and said, well, you know, and we had a set of instruments in the, um, in the office area. And I can certainly see the, you know, the wind tee, the wind sock from, uh, um, the office. And I said, look, you know, winds appear to be favoring such and such a runway. Um, we have an altimeter setting of X and, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, do you, you know we, we, there's no reported, there's no traffic we've heard from lately. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, um, of course, w- when you were a boy, it was a, a less litigious age there back in the 1920s. And, uh, yeah. Well, exactly, exactly. Law books hadn't really even been invented back then. <laughs> when I was, uh, years ago, I was involved with, a, uh, with an EAA chapter, uh, and we would do a lot of uh, uh, Young Eagle rallies where we would try and gather a lot of airplanes so that we could give lots of kids rides. And um, sometimes we would have so many airplanes involved that we felt a need to do some sort of Unicom-like thing, um, if only to direct people on the on on the ramp, you know, tra- taxiing aircraft. That is, and and we we developed a situation. That, so we'd get a person who'd be sitting on the ramp, you know, usually in the cab of their pickup truck or whatever, with a handheld radio, um, talking to airplanes in the pattern and on the ramp taxiing. And and they would naturally, I think, kind of naturally, fall into sort of an ATC role, and and we put a stop to that at one point, and we, we kind of briefed our 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 controller, if you will, um, to make sure that they only acted in an advisory fashion, right. that that they never gave instructions to anybody, that they just said, you know, there's an aircraft behind you, there's an aircraft in front of you, you know. You seem to be number one, you know, or advisory. Um, we, were, we were very careful to do this. We were also careful to make sure that the person in that role was, in fact, a current licensed pilot. Mm-hmm. I don't know if those things would have helped us push come to lawsuit, but but that's what we tried to do. And, uh, you know, it worked. Nobody got hurt, you know, and it smoothed things out. But mm-hmm. it's a mm-hmm. puzzle, you know. It's, You're just it trying. It's, it's, a, it's a big issue, growing issue in a lot of areas. And I think, you know, you, you were tackling it correctly, you know, just um, I remember when we went into um, Ponca City a couple of years ago? Year and a half? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, Unicom, somebody on the Unicom frequency um, <clears throat> was working it pretty hard, if, if you recall. Yeah. It was pointing out, you know, all right, you know, whoever's on final, uh, you know, keep your speed up. Someone's behind you. Um, you know, try to clear it such and such a taxiway and, and this kind of thing. And, and uh I thought that was rather um, interesting. It was, it was almost nonstop chatter on that Unicom frequency. I remember it was very busy. Yeah, yeah, and uh, um, I don't know that that um, whoever was on the ground. I don't know that he or she was helping. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So, and as long as it's being used in its intended purpose, uh, you know, there's there's some latitude there. I read on on this forums area uh, where it pointed out something that was nagging at the back of my head. Uh, like Dead Cow International has a Unicom frequency and a transceiver. They have to have a license for that. 
that's a ground station. Uh, a handheld, prop, probably if you buy a new one, there's probably a license application that comes in the box. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And will tell you what's required for you to use it outside the aircraft, in even in airband use. And that may, in fact, require that you fill out a card and send it in to the FCC. Uh, but, David, that's contrary to what you said a few minutes ago, that the license is no longer required. I'm a little confused The license now. is not required for stations in the aircraft. Oh, okay. All right. Yes. Yeah. All right. That's what it, yeah, that's yeah. why I was yeah. wanted to make sure is that because reading farther down through here, you know, that it gets pointed out in this uh, a number of times that the aircraft mounted radios are licensed by rule and you don't have to have the piece of paper as long as you're operating inside the U.S. and not talking right. to that. That's been my understanding for a long time. As I recall, license. once upon a time, the you know, one of the ARO acronym, is it ARO? You know, the, the papers that you're supposed to have on the aircraft. Radio station license. One of them was radio station license, but that actually became obsolete um, since I've learned to fly because I think that might have been about the time that it went away. I'm not sure. So, anyways, interesting subject. Well, and, it, and it used to be, you know, when I got my ticket way back, you know, uh, um, in the dark ages, um, you had to have a radio telephone operator's permit from the FCC mm-hmm. in addition to the aircraft um, uh, station license. And um, it was basically fill out a form and send in five bucks or whatever it was back yeah. then. And I still have that little piece of paper somewhere. Uh, it's no longer required uh, for the human and um, you know, you no longer have to have the station license in the airplane. Yeah, it's like CB radios. Uh, they finally stopped requiring licenses uh, for the operators to CB radios. <laughs> yeah, because of course, prior to that, we all went out and got our CB radio oh, license absolutely. properly yeah. because we were supposed to. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> all right. Speaking of, uh, let's see. Now I had a really nice segue here. What was it? Uh, uh, speaking of someone pretending to be something they're not, how do you like that, huh? How's that? Uh, so we've got this uh, this pilot from uh, a, a woman flying as captain for Indigo, uh, which I presume is some sort of scheduled airline or aircraft service, um, has had her certificate revoked after the investigation of a rough landing in January found that she allegedly forged papers to earn her ATPL certificate. According, this is according to India's Aviation Authority. So uh, I guess what happened here is that uh, uh, in, uh, as a result of a very, very rough landing, bad landing, um, an investigation of the whole situation uncovered the fact that her paperwork wasn't in order. And uh, um, this, this pilot, uh, quote, you know, I mean, I'm sure she was a pilot. She may not have been sufficiently rated to have this job. Um, is, but she had the she had the wheelbarrow landing technique down. Perfect. <laughs> this is yeah okay. So you're jumping to the you're jumping to the uh, to the, to the punchline here. This is yet a, yet another danger of landing on the nose wheel. Yes. Here's so you know. Uh, all right. <laughs> We're not going to talk about losing your license. We're going to talk about the thing I really wanted to talk about here, which was what David correctly points to here. Where's the wording in here? All right. It said uh, um, that. I, you know, I can't find the sentence now. Okay. Oh, no. The landing at Go is it Goa Airport? Goa? How do you say that word? Uh, it's in India. Um, airport apparently involved a nose wheel first touchdown technique, which led to a problem that they, they, with, with the, they get discovered with the gear. Um, the way they phrase that is that this was not an oops. This was a, 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 a technique that you do under certain circumstances. Do you? 
No. Never. <laughs> no. 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 Never. This is Avweb. Uh, they know better. Why are they writing this as if this was a real technique? No, no, no. And then later in the story, down lower in this first graph, it says subsequent investigation discovered the pilot had not only used her nose wheel first technique several times. Oh, I get it. It's, I see. It's her technique. It's her nose wheel first technique. <laughs> not, not the nose wheel first technique. I see. Okay. Well, We've seen it done well enough that we've done, we've seen the nose wheel first wheelbarrow technique done so well that you couldn't go around to do it a second time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Back in my training days in 152s, once or once or twice, I I, I came close to performing this technique, and my uh, instructor set me straight pretty quickly because um, you just don't want to do that, especially no. in a 152. Well, um, in, in, in any airplane, and that's the, kind of the punchline here is. Um, I don't know how to. Uh, it's not designed to carry that load. It's not designed yeah. to carry that much weight. It's not to designed to carry that much weight at that kind of an angle. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, pick an airplane. We, the, the, what David just said about nose wheels is, in fact, true. Um, anytime you're in you're in the landing mode anytime you're close to the runway and and trying to flare and trying to get the wheels on the or or trying to get the floats on the on the water or or whatever else anytime you push forward on the yoke or the stick or the pitch control whatever you want to call it um you're doing it wrong yeah yeah you're doing yeah. it wrong and and before you even consider if if you have to do something to push in, in the to to pitch down pitch the nose down at that point in the in the in the flight, unless you know, uh, um, um, I don't know, you, you uh, overflying a deer or something like that, and then you want to. But but even then, anytime you're, you want to pitch down in the flare, uh, you're doing it wrong. Go around. Yeah. Okay. The only time the front wheel should touch down first is when it's a tailwheel airplane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, this this yeah. Landing technique aside, this woman got jammed up because apparently she faked her uh, part of her paperwork. Um, do you think and that's she, a common she, thing? She wasn't. She wasn't faking the landing technique from the other articles that I've read about this. Uh, that that's that's how she thought it was supposed to be done. Well, and, that, and no check pilot ever caught her on. Hey, this is mind-boggling see, almost. Well, that that just begs the question of how she got to where she was. If that was the way that she was consistently trying to land the airplane, <clears throat> and I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but uh, uh, and, I, and it's not a, a male-female thing. It's just like, you don't do it that way. Yeah, I, it's. Do you you're think you're doing that, it wrong? I don't know if this is a, an, an India thing or just a human nature thing, but that they didn't double check her paperwork when she was going through the process. I mean. I don't know. Uh, is the world well, that hungry for airline pilots? You know, uh, there's paperwork and then there's paperwork. And in today's <laughs> digital age, the ability to forge, no better word, to forge uh, documents with remarkable similarity to what they're supposed to look like has never been better. Right. Now I'm not saying that that's what this lady did. She may have just, you know, used stone and chisel for all I know. But uh, I, I've heard a couple of, uh, of talks about 
you know, voting documents and pilot ID cards and all this. And that's one of the things that always comes up is how much easier with digital technology, laminating machines, uh, the ability to merge photos on pieces of paper and make them look like official documents, laminate them up. You do it to the application. You scan it. You fill it out. Uh, it's way too easy. Yeah. So we we sort of talked about a related thing last week when we talked about the fact that they're going to stop um, throwing out um, the records about violations and whatnot, so that so that uh, I guess pilot, you know, commercial or airline pilot applicants can be more carefully vetted. Um, it, but how does it work? And, and let's get away from India for a second, because I'm sure we don't know how it works in India. Let's pretend, as usual, that we know how it works in the United States. Um, it, so I would never do this in real life, because this is wildly dangerous. But just as sort of an informational example here, um, if I wandered into an FBO to rent an airplane, and for some reason the rental required that I be IFR rated, um, and, and I had cooked up all the paperwork that I carried in my hands that indicated that I was IFR rated, like, I guess, logbook entries. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any way that they could check? Is there, could, you know, can they call Oklahoma City somehow, some way? And is it well, even... You can, you can get online right now and, and search the Airman database. You can. And come yeah. up with uh, a list of the ratings um, listed um, for that individual by the FAA. Now, really? a, there might be a small window in here. Let's say you passed your check ride last week, mm-hmm. and your uh, uh, examiner tears you off that little temporary piece of paper uh, that you're going to add to your logbook and your license and your medical to show that you're instrument rated until you get your new paperwork from Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In that window, and let's probably let's be generous and say. Minimum two weeks, maybe six, before it would show up on the database. Right, but but putting the lag aside for a minute, um, it has a slightly different example. Um, is your medical status online someplace? The yes. No. F- well, yes and no. Um, yeah. Go ahead. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. All right, one at a time. Jeb, go first. It may be online for for FAA use. I don't think it's online for uh, public access. I, I, I'm I'm certainly willing to be corrected on that. Mm-hmm. So if I showed um, the FBO, but, but that's not relevant. That's not relevant. Why not? Because if you go back and you read the regs, the way you know the medical certificate says that on a certain day at a certain time in a certain doctor's office, um, we met all the requirements for this medical certificate. Okay. Mm-hmm. The next, um, we could have a heart attack uh, and not be eligible. The punchline is that we self-certify um, uh, on, on the days during which we are not in the doctor's office getting a, a medical certificate. Um, so the, quick an- the way you phrase the question, the quick answer is no. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And, and it, as far as the FAA regs are required, yes, it's, it's a lot of self-certification and, and, you know, honor system kind of thing. Um, from a practical standpoint, you know, when you try and rent airplanes, um, they require that you, you, demo, you know, you, you show the paperwork and, right. uh, um, 
And so, and I'm sure if getting a job would be the same thing. I mean, if I if I had a com, you know, I mean, if I cooked up paperwork that I was had a commercial license and then tried to get a job flying FedEx packages, you know, is there some way for them to check that? Or yeah, or, yeah. there's a there's a the Pilots Record Improvement Act, uh, PIRA, which was uh, enacted, I want to say in the mid '90s. Um, so in the aftermath, there's always an aftermath, right? Um, yeah. The aftermath of a, um, I believe it was an American Eagle Jetstream 41 that crashed um, near Raleigh, um, Raleigh, North Carolina, Raleigh, Durham, uh, trying to get into Raleigh, Durham. Um, came, come to find out the pilot, uh, captain of that flight, um, had a, a checkered history and uh, uh, had some check ride issues and uh, um, there was no... They started peeling the onion, and there was no way to determine uh, on a widespread basis um, um, how um, or why or what remedial training or anything like that uh, a pilot may have received and uh, whether or not he or she had, had you know, failed several check rides and maybe gone check ride shopping, um, things like that. Um, <clears throat> so there was a basically a, a, I'm going I'm to use the term database. I've never participated in the thing because uh, I'm not a but uh, I'm sorry, um, you broke up there. You're not a what? I'm not a commercial pilot. Mm-hmm, okay. Uh, well, I technically I have the commercial ticket. I'm not. I don't fly for money, so I, I'm not in that uh, in that system. So I don't know all the all the ins and outs. And I'm sure some of our listeners would 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 say it's you know very simple. It's the, it's this that and the other thing because they're familiar with it. Uh, now skip forward to um, the um, Colgan Airways Dash Eight Four Hundred that crashed in Buffalo about a year and a half ago, two years ago. Um, similar situation there. The captain uh, had had some troubles in, in, in his career getting through check rides and whatnot. Um, so there has been more legislation proposed and or enacted uh, trying to close an, another perceived loophole. And, of course, the punchline here is that, you know, everybody has a bad day. Uh, and everybody, you know, flubs a check ride every now and then. Um, the, yeah, they should be getting a second chance. They should be able to go back and cover the, the stuff. Yeah. My, my reaction to all this, of course, is, you know, Congress doesn't get it right the first time, uh, a lot of times also. So, you know, uh, all this attention being paid to uh, whether someone flubs a check ride or, or has a, a checkered training history or something like that is, is just, you know, uh, closing the barn door after the horse gets out. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, it is what it is. Yeah. And if uh, if you do a uh, FAA registry search for a name and have all the right information, uh, address, date of birth, uh, it will show you the record, the date of uh, the type of medical, the date of the last medical. Oh, okay, well, okay. Uh, any restrictions like must have available glasses for near vision, uh, ratings. And limits. Mm-hmm. So, so you're looking at this database right now? Yep. Really? Okay. And if uh, I had your address and date of birth, I could find you. <laughs> well, that's never going to happen. Um, <laughs> but if you went to an F- FBO to rent an airplane... Yeah, they, they could look. They certainly could copy, get it off your driver's be, license they, and whatever. They would yeah. be well-placed to say, uh, address and date of birth, please. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> These days, an FBO needs to see a copy of your birth certificate. 
uh-huh. order to let you rent airplanes. I'm no joke. Um, really? That's a TSA thing. All right. Oh, yeah. Birth I know. Certificate? Yep. To rent an airplane? You betcha. At least up here in, New, in well in Maine. I don't know if that's because we're close to a border. I don't know. I I know that when I started renting at at uh, Sanford, uh, they wanted to see my birth certificate. And uh, yeah, cool, huh? That's football. Welcome to America in the early 21st century. You see, may we see your papers, please? Exactly. Exactly. All right. Let's not go down that road, though. Hey, listen, we're having a lot of fun here. I just shortened the list. Why don't you refresh your browsers, and we'll <laughs> see what happens. Um, we're having a lot of fun here. So here's a story out of uh, Houston's Hobby Airport. Uh, this is a story from the uh, cron.com website, which appears to be... Houston Chronicle. Houston Chronicle, yeah, okay. Um, Houston, Texas, a Federal Aviation Administration spokesman says a Learjet carrying a patient on a medical flight was unable to stop before it reached the end of a runway at Houston Hobby Airport. FAA spokesperson Lynn Lunsford said the aircraft was transporting a patient, uh, but none of the six, I'm starting to paraphrase here, but none of the six people on board were injured. The patient was then taken to a Texas hospital. Um, here's the paragraph I really want to talk about. Uh, Lunsford said the plane ran about 1,000 feet off the runway and damaged runway lights and antenna. The jet's wing was also damaged. Um, Lunford said the pilot did not miss the runway. He just didn't have enough left after landing and ran out of concrete. How the heck fast do you have to be going in order to continue another 1,000 feet on rough ground before stopping? There's this is a the two-word. Can I give him the first two-word answer for that? Go ahead. It depends. Yeah, no, I'm, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's a Learjet. It may, not, it may not be how fast he was going. It may be how far down the runway he touched. Well, right. which kind of go together, my point, all right, that, uh, you know, this is like, you know, in a pinch, I don't know, can you stop a Learjet in a thousand feet if you had to? Short short field landing? I bet sure, you could. there's a brick wall on that no, nine, no, 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 no. foot. <laughs> no. Touchdown, maybe a 31A if you threw an anchor out. This doesn't, this doesn't doesn't set off your alarms that it took a thousand feet on rough ground before this airplane came to a stop well well y- yeah. yes and no yes and no i mean all right, first i want to hear jeb's answer it sounds more interesting first of all it's a mass media product okay so uh a thousand feet in the in the eyes of somebody you know may or may not be a thousand feet uh secondly um we just Dave, Dave's right. It depends. We don't know. We don't know if he touched down way down the runway. We don't know if um, there was a mechanical. We don't know if he had you know way too much airspeed. We don't know if uh, thrust reversers failed. We don't know if the brakes failed. Um, we don't know anything about the terrain. Generally speaking, an overrun area, at a, I don't know, I'm sure at Houston Hobby, they have a fairly flat, well-maintained overrun area. Um, and it could have been wet with, you know, the grass could have been slick. And he locks up the brakes, and you're, on, you're in for a ride. Uh, I don't know what obstacles they might, might have taken out. Uh, we don't know. Um, uh, clearly, um, something went askew, whether it was the operator, the pilots, whether it was mechanical, whether it was a combination of the, of the or something else. I don't know. Yeah. Here's what I'd like to do. Um, let me... Let me move on to the next subject on our list real quickly, all right? And while we're doing that, Jeb, can you see if you can find an NTSB on this to give, see if it gives us any more information? Yeah, there might be one. Okay. <clears throat> Let me see here. David, while he's doing that, um, on a on a much more serious note, a much more serious note, um, uh, the aviation world lost a good friend recently. Um, 
and uh, ah yes, I I didn't know Jack Cox very well. I met him on a couple of occasions. Um, I certainly knew of him um, through his his terrific work um, for EAA and the magazines there. Um, but I did. Did you know Jack Cox? Knew Jack and Golda going back. Oh wow! My first introduction to uh, direct introduction to EAA years ago at Glider Rider Magazine. Yeah, Jack passed away just very recently. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Jack was uh, not a, not an aviation journalist. Uh, I, I believe he was teaching and and writing for uh, a, a sport aviation club out in the out in the Carolinas when he came to the attention in and in an EAA member when he came to the attention of. Uh, of Paul Poberezny, uh back in the late '60s, and uh, Paul, being uh, a, a fairly being pretty good at convincing people that they that they could help something, uh, as he was convinced uh, Jack and Golda to relocate from uh, uh, South Carolina to. Uh, to uh, well, first uh, the the Milwaukee area when EAA. In 70, Jack became the editor of uh, 72. I think he became the editor of Sport Aviation Magazine mm-hmm. and stayed on until he uh, until he retired. Uh, gosh, I, I guess just about a decade ago now, 99 or 2000. Mm-hmm. But he was still fairly present, wasn't he? Well, he uh, I don't think uh, I, I don't remember missing seeing uh, the two of them in a golf cart zipping around Sun and Fun and Oshkosh in all the years since. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, went back home uh, to the southeast and uh, he never disconnected from his home community. Uh, he and Golda would go back there frequently on uh, vacation and when trips allowed, uh, they owned and flew uh, uh, a uh, 180 horse Comanche. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a long time. And uh, what was he like? Was he a good guy? Very sharp, kind of a dry wit. He had a very, very good eye for detail and wrote very descriptive, uh, highly personalized stories about the builders that he profiled and the airplanes that he got to fly. Uh, and I helped uh, build the magazine through what's arguably uh, some of its strongest growth years in the uh, uh, late 70s and the early 80s and 90s. Yeah, yeah. Good, good guy. Really knew his stuff. Uh, well liked. People liked him. Uh, fit in well with the uh, with the EAA community as, as it was uh, as it was in, in those years. When yeah, yeah. Well, we're still running it. Perhaps goes without saying that he will be missed, um, but he certainly won't be forgotten um, as a result of the, his personal relationships and the great work he did with EAA and, and other organizations. So, uh, Our condolences to Golda. We hope we still see her uh, showing up like at uh, Sun and Fun in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Jeb, I didn't mean to shut you out of that. Did you have anything you wanted to add? No, about? I did not. <clears throat> excuse me. I did not know Jack. Um, I, I probably met him a couple of times. Um but um, no, I, I really don't have anything to add. Okay, okay. All right. Um, any luck with the NTSB? Yeah, nothing. Yeah, what I've got here. <clears throat> excuse me. Not only NTSB's website at this point. Um, it's not. There, yeah. there is. There is, however, an entry in the um, in the FAA yeah. um, tracking system here for this. This is a Learjet 25. It's a Mexican registered aircraft. 
mm-hmm. uh, according to the brief description. Uh, this was this happened on March four at ten o five local time. Uh, Mexico registered aircraft Learjet twenty five aircraft on landing ran off the end of the runway and struck the ILS localizer and lights. Uh, no injuries. Um, <clears throat> an interesting uh, tidbit here. Wind was calm. Um, wet weather at the time. Wind calm. Three quarters of a mile visibility in in mist. Oh. Uh, temp nineteen. Dew point eighteen. Yeah. Okay. So they had some That's low kind of interesting. There. They had some low weather there. There's no. There's no um, uh, data here on the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, obviously they got down and, and it was it was enough. You know, had enough ceiling for um for um a um, an ILS apparently, but. Um, um, that you know could be you know some could be a wet runway too. We don't know. Yeah, could be part of the issue. Yeah. Okay. Maybe we'll come back to this. I don't know. We'll yeah, see well, if we learn anything more. At, I was looking at the uh, air nav page on Houston Hobby and uh, runway twelve right seventy six hundred by one hundred and fifty uh, has a displaced threshold of a thousand thirty four feet. Uh, and uh-huh. there are ILSs at both the uh, end of 12 right and the end of 30 left, which means if he overran either end going in either direction, there were antenna and structure uh, ahead of the airplane because of the ILS array and the localizer equipment and all that. So uh, not a good place to overrun. Uh, no, and like Jeff said, you know the 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 reasons that that happened. So many so many options. Thrust reversers could have failed. Brakes could have failed. Uh, tire blowout. Uh, touchdown too far. Touchdown too fast. Uh, really can't second guess that without seeing more from the NTSB. Yeah. Okay. Maybe we'll come back to it later on if we learn a little bit more. Uh, I don't know if it was last episode, or, or but certainly one of the recent episodes, we talked about some concerns that the latest cell phone technology was going to interfere with GPS reception. And now we're seeing another story uh, on the subject of GPS reception. I don't think I don't think it's related. Jeb, you put this on the list. Well, what's what's the story here? Jamming and spoofing GPS. So this is just bad guys. This is not just an accident. This is now active bad guys. Well, it's a little it's a little um, interesting. Let's put it that way. Uh, first of all, the article um, had nothing to do with what we talked about the other day yep. uh, relative to this um, this company that wants to kind of uh, do an end run around uh, um, getting into the free, um, terrestrial data communications market by setting up uh, a bunch of ground stations on a, on a frequent on set of frequencies that is adjacent to the GPS frequencies. Um, that's a whole other topic, and in fact, there have been some developments on that since we last spoke. But uh, this particular article has to do with uh, something that happened uh, back in, in January 2007 in San Diego. Um, <clears throat> two Navy ships in the harbor were working on a technical issue um, in, in trying trying to communicate between themselves or something like that. I don't you know don't know exactly what ha- what happened here. Um, but in, in, in going working through this particular problem these two uh, ships had, um, they succeeded in jamming the GPS signal for downtown San Diego. 
uh, for, for a couple of mile radius apparently here. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, what, what this article points out is that that is relatively easy to do, uh, in part because the GPS signal itself is re- relatively weak. Yes. It can be easily overcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the article also talks about is, while you know, certainly um, that's an illegal activity, um, in enough sleuthing uh, um, can, will, will you know, show you how to build a circuit to do that, or even some more sleuthing will, will find you a, uh, a resource overseas where you can buy a jammer and, and hook it up. And, and, and there's talk about um, truckers who uh, want to get off the grid, uh, don't want someone tracking them, uh, they will jam, um, have a portable jammer in their cab that will jam uh, built-in GPS trackers in the, in the truck, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the punchline here is that uh, GPS is relatively easy to jam, in part, again, because of its relatively weak uh, signal strength. Um, and, um, you know, we've talked about... about um, all these tests that seem to occur uh, regularly, uh, military uh, run, uh, right. and how you know they can impact airspace for uh, literally thousands of square miles. Um, this is a different issue in that um, it's 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 not a um, it's not a systemic uh, problem in that you know someone's trying to put some technology in place that could routinely interfere with GPS. This is a different problem in that um, GPS is relatively easy to jam, and this article simply highlights that. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, uh, not to overstate it here, but this is a huge deal, all right? I, I think it is. I think it's a sleeping issue that a lot of people are, are um, not f- familiar with and not really paying a whole lot of attention to. Yeah. Talking about this, this, uh, this 4G terrestrial network that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. there was a, supposedly a hearing or there going to be a hearing scheduled on Capitol Hill on this. Yeah, I think I uh, saw that, yeah. I don't uh, think it's happened yet, though, right? a coalition of, of GPS users. I don't think it's happened yet either. There's a coalition of GPS users who, who have banded together. Garmin is part of that. Trimble is part of that. Um, and it's, it's, you're basically going to go pound on the FCC, and, and they're not going to... Uh, Apparently, they've not gotten what they wanted from the FCC yet, so they're going to go pound on Capitol Hill. And more power to them. Um, in my book, the punchline is this. And, and putting aside aviation, um, GPS is, is, has become ubiquitous. Yeah. Uh, it's designed to be ubiquitous. But it really has become ubiquitous in the sense that we use it um, sometimes without knowing it. Um, if you've got a smartphone, um, it's got a GPS chip in it. And uh, when you Google something... On your smartphone, let's say you Google sushi, uh, it's going to pop up um, a list of sushi restaurants nearby. Yeah. Um, now, whether or not that's a critical function is is an, is certainly debatable. But we've gotten to all of these little gadgets, uh, whether they're in our cars, in our phones, in our airplanes, in our boats, in our trucks. Um, and in fact, uh, some of this occurs behind our backs without even knowing about it and just, you know, tends to make life a lot easier. But the other thing, another, th- I should say, uh, another thing going on here is that there are a lot of unrelated devices using G- the GPS signal for a time check to set an accurate time, which is important, um, uh, for any number of other reasons, uh, not related to navigation or communication. Um, and... Once we start tinkering with um, 
the quality of the signal, the ability to receive the signal, uh, then we've started really kind of tinkering with uh, uh, some of the things that we're, we're very accustomed to doing on an everyday basis. Yeah. Um, now, this is an aviation podcast, so let's right. talk about the aviation uh, impact. Clearly, um, with GPS being as ubiquitous as it is, and um, you know, especially the later uh, um, gadgets, the later navigators with WAS incorporated into them, uh, that's the the system that the FAA wants us to use uh, in the future exclusively. Yeah. Right. But all it's this the... all this talk about the satellite based air traffic control system. Right. Thank you. That's Thank what we're talking about. It's at the yep. very very heart of next gen. I mean, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, it, it, and there's two there's there's two weaknesses in the in in this system as it is, and, and, and Jeb's hit on what a lot of people. Uh, I've written a couple of dozen stories about WAS and ADSB over the last three years, and a recurring theme in talking to people in the industry is that they're all for it. They think it's got great potential. They don't think anybody's paying near enough attention to the need for a backup. Because uh, this issues that this jamming, accidental jamming uh, points out that deliberate jamming is, is subject to, uh, it's just s- such a fragile signal because it, it's so weak. It's coming from 22,000 miles out in space to begin with. Uh, and it has not had as widespread and onerous a threat as this light-squared uh, uh, business plan creates with its uh, desire to put up 40,000 base stations in the 4G spectrum right next to the GPS spectrum when each one of those 40,000 uh, relay sites, 4G relay sites, has the potential to disrupt GPS receivers' use for several kilometers in every direction, every one of them, mm-hmm. uh, you know that that just screws the pooch uh, on a precision approach navigation, in route navigation, and the ADSB link that the FAA wants us to pin on. Right. And I'm gr- thrilled to see this attention being given to the light squared problem and the widespread jamming that it could cause. Uh, more in hopes that they will start thinking in serious terms about looking at a parallel backup system like Enhanced Loran to run in the background next to WASP GPS for when this happens, because it's going to freaking happen. It's going to happen. It's yeah. going to happen. If, it's if, just too easy. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm not being completely facetious when I say that I'm sitting here thinking that that – GPS has peaked. It's it's you know I'm, I'm suddenly thinking this is not the technology, and I thought it was. I, I mean I'm thinking GPS is great stuff, and it is as far as it goes. But um, I wonder what the next it, GPS is pretty old technology when you get right All down to it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. Um, yeah, it is. You know, I'm, as fast I'm, as things move uh, these days, Jeb. Yeah, yeah, I I tend to agree with you in the in the sense that. Uh, um, yeah, GPS as we know it probably won't be around in say fifty years. There'll be something else. Oh, fifty. Um, well, fifteen. I, well, maybe fifteen. Um, the problem is a couple, threefold. One, um, the U.S. government—it's it's political problem. The U.S. government has a lot of money invested in this. 
Um, they would like it to continue. Um, but uh, what we're going to see is, is someone is going to go to the next level. Absolutely. It's, it's I mean, this is where Japan, GPS Russia, came from. You know, uh, Brazil, somebody is going to take this to the next level, maybe China. And um, then what's going to happen is we're going to get all xenophobic about it. And, well, we can't, you know, we can't buy into this. We can't do this. We can't do that. And we're going to be stuck uh, with a third-rate technology while the rest of the world is going to move forward. Well, yeah, but, that but, would be my fear. That's not the way. It's, it's not going to be a nation that, that, that does something different. It's going to be the, the consumer base. It's going to be the marketplace. That's where GPS right. came from. Exactly. Fifteen years ago, Loran was going to be the thing, all right? And we were all getting excited about putting Lorans in our airplanes, all right? And then quietly, sort of through the marketplace, people started playing around with this GPS. And this is when mm-hmm. GPS was still broken, when right. SA was still turned on, right. all right? And the marketplace said, no, we like GPS better than Loran, and GPS grew and grew and grew to the point where the, then suddenly you know, our, our leaders woke up and said, oh, okay, you know, we're going to mandate the use of GPS by 20 years from now. But, of course, 20 years from now, something else will be around. Right. You know? I mean, you know, take you know, your iPad, for example. You've talked in the past about how impressed you are with the fact that your iPad can locate you so easily, mm-hmm. so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, part of the reason it's doing that is it's not exclusively using GPS. It's using other locations technologies and maybe that's the future of all this stuff and that's not to say that next gen isn't going to be severely broken 10 years from now all right but you know you we and our, our debonairs and our you know pipers and our cessnas have a chance to have the good technology when the time comes well, what's what's patently insane about this i mean and there's a lot of patently insane stuff in the world uh it, particularly where government interacts with aviation but at this time Three years ago, the U.S. Department of Defense was planning on implementing a conversion of our existing Loran system. Uh, that was the Pacific chain, the Midcontinent chain, the Atlantic chain, and updating it to E-Loran. Uh, a year ago, we turned E-Loran off. Mm-hmm. Because turned all Loran off. I uh, turned all Loran off. Uh, the, the antenna, the broadcast towers, and all that stuff, uh, already built and established. All they had to do is be updated to the new system. The old antennas could be replaced on the towers that were already there. Uh, it would have been way cheaper than a, a whole different satellite system that still wouldn't be as immune from jamming as Eloran. Uh we, we had it. We had it en route. We had it on the way. The technology to put dual capability receiver chips in our navigators is already in existence. It's already approved and been used in some instances in Europe. Uh, and we went stupid. I mean, well, just, you know, oh, no, GPS, we've looked at it, we've studied it, and we don't really see a big potential for outages. Okay, I'm sorry. But that's like telling me that there's no evolution, no global warming, and there's no Santa Claus. Uh, you know, Wait, fairy tale at all. No you Santa want Claus? To. Oh, man, it, David. David's oh. a family podcast. <laughs> but there is a Santa Claus. They keep telling me there's not. Yeah, uh, right. Exactly. There you go. There you go. Hey, we got to wrap this up. But uh, it's a big deal. And, uh, you know, a, we've, and, and I'm hoping that this whole thing, because the light squared people are patently deranged. In their suggestion <laughs> that the Higdon, rest of the H-I-G-D-O-N, world, H I G D O N, that the rest of the world invest in 
updating their equipment to protect our equipment yeah. from their new stuff. Yeah. When yeah. our stuff was built and met the standard that was required at the time, it's up to them to make sure it doesn't work or give it up. Because way too much of our world, aviation, defense, trucking, maritime, traffic, copter, and my nightly episodes of Robot Chicken depend on the GPS. Yeah, I know. I know. Let's move on here. But let, let me suggest that we finish close this off by saying that th- this is a big deal and that we all maybe ought to uh, send, drop a little friendly line to our elected representatives saying, you know, GPS is important to us, at least in the medium term, and uh, let's not let it get any more messed up than necessary. Most yeah, of I'm, my, I'm all for free enterprise. But most of my recent message to my elected officials. Yeah, Jeb. Go ahead, Jeb. Most most of my recent missives to my elected officials start out with the phrase, "Are you insane?" <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I'm sure that's go downhill from there. So I don't know the value of my doing that. But I'm uh, sure that's uh, very effective too. Yeah. Uh, anyways, moving on, moving on. Let's see now, uh, real quickly, because we got to wrap this thing up. But real quickly, I want to uh, uh, call attention to an off-field landing of the week. This is one that was proposed by one of our listeners in the forums, in the UCAP forums. Cool. Listener G. Marshall has called our attention to a, an RV4. He writes in the forums, a pilot in Courtney County, uh, I'm sorry, Courtney, British Columbia, flying an RV4, suffered an engine failure after takeoff. He landed straight ahead on some tidal flats past the perimeter of the airport. Looks like a landing gear failure may have caused some substantial damage, uh, hopefully repairable. Either way, G. Marshall writes, good stuff, not turning back. And there is a story in the, uh, uh, well, from Canada.com, the uh, Kamox Valley Echo uh, writes uh, about the, the incident. Um, and uh, yes, it shows a picture of the sad little airplane, um, the RV4, uh, sitting on the uh, out on the sand. Uh, it looks like, like he says, it looks like gear collapsed or sunk into the mud yeah, or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And uh, the gear got wiped out. Yeah, it looks like it. I, I can, yeah, in, on that terrain, I can imagine it. But they obviously got on the ground safely, and and good job to. Uh, let's see if it gives the pilot's name here. I don't see the pilot's name, but. Uh, but congratulations to the pilot. Good job. Um, my favorite registered to a Bernie Brilling. That's right. Um, but the story doesn't indicate that he was necessarily the uh, pilot. Yeah. Um, We're sorry about your RV, dude. But you, uh, you call them out in Oregon, and they can send you everything that you need to fix that puppy. Yeah. Well, maybe not. You know, because the one thing that did catch my attention in this story is that apparently this RV4 was using um, some sort of special engine technology. According to the story, uh, reading from the last graph, according to Transport Canada, the blue-colored single-piston plane. <laughs> so wow, this is like got a single piston. I mean, that just saves on all kinds of things if you only have but one. But you know piston. how easy it is to get a Briggs and Stratton motor fix. So. <laughs> yeah, it's a lawnmower engine, right? Exactly. Okay. Anyways, I think they probably meant single engine piston plane, but. Anyways, okay. Congratulations to this RV4 pilot, whether it was Bernie uh, or not. Uh, it's not hard to figure out that they might have misunderstood that because, I mean, look how they spelled colored. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's I'm sorry, time. gang. I, and I write for some folks in the UK, and uh, bless their hearts, they publish over here, so we never have to deal with that. All right there, you go. Yeah. Anyways, shout outs. I'll start. Uh, I want to call attention to a Twitter message that I came across recently that I thought was kind of cute. Um, Twitter, uh, and presumably a UCAP listener um, who goes by the Twitter name General Eclectic. 
Um, and from his Twitter profile, his name apparently is Timothy, Timothy Elson. Uh, uh, Timothy, or General Eclectic, writes, uh, he, he addressed this Twitter message to myself and to Jeb, and he would have to Dave, but Dave's a big curmudgeon on the subject of Twitter. Um, he says, uh, time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan, but ground school certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's a problem, isn't it? So, uh, it's a small price to pay. Okay. Uh, that's right. That's right. So uh, that's my shout out to General Eclectic, Timothy E. Uh, we thank him for that, and uh, I don't know why what we're going to make of that but you never can tell so that's number one what else we got here you guys got any shout outs um yeah i've got a shout out um don brown um is a retired air traffic controller uh he used to work in the uh, atlanta air route traffic control center uh, not coincidentally near atlanta georgia um and somehow back in the late 90s he came on my radar screen uh to coin a phrase um as someone who wanted to um, um, be a, uh, a voice uh, for general aviation, uh, to general aviation perhaps, um, uh, from behind the controller's scope. He wanted to, um, he had a few things he wanted to share and, and say, and uh, um, um, I was running AvWeb at the time and was looking for a columnist uh, with that voice, with that background, and added Don uh, to the masthead. Um, this might have actually been around 2000, 2001, as I recall now. Suffice it to say that uh, he ran a column on IAVWeb for a number of years. Uh, he retired during that, that time. He was also, at the, uh, while he was uh, on the job, a um, um, safety coordinator, safety rep uh, for the National Air Traffic Controllers Association, NATCA, working through the Atlanta Center. And not coincidentally, uh, he's worked me as traffic in the past uh, when he was still uh, um, on scopes and uh, still on the job at Atlanta Center. Don has his own blog, uh, and I came across this because he was one of the uh, the uh, fill-in people for uh, James Fallows and James Fallows' blog on the Atlantic.com oh. uh, while James was out of the country and, and otherwise uh, occupied doing some things and, and was not able to to blog regularly at his normal uh, normal location. Um, James and, and Don got together, and, and Don was one of the people who uh, um, uh, filled in for, for Fallows while he was out. Um, Don has his own blog, uh, aptly named Get the Flick. And uh, uh, <laughs> if you don't understand that term from a, a, uh, an air traffic control standpoint, uh, there's a very good, succinct, and, and easy explanation on uh, Don's uh, web, uh, on his blog, I should say. Um, just a shout out to Don. Uh, I've met him personally. We've talked a lot. Uh, he's good people. He's got a, a very good uh, uh, little blog here. It's called gettheflick.blogspot.com. Uh, tell him I sent you. And uh, I think uh, it's something you should add to your, your aviation blogging uh, um, uh, links. And yeah. uh, I think it'd be worthwhile. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm certainly going to add it to mine. Yeah, very cool. I want to check it out too. Yeah. yeah. Don's good people. Yeah. David, you got anything? Uh, just a, a, a real quick and dirty one to our, our friends at the Friendly Aviation Agency for their new safety stand-down page. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, the, a, a series of regional one-day stand-down uh, events that they're going to be uh, conducting around the country, starting with one at uh, Sun and Fun in a couple of weeks. Oh, okay. Uh 
and it follows the same uh, philosophy, if you will, as the what I what I consider to be the uh, the the granddaddy of stand downs here in the United States now, and that's the Bombardier safety stand down here right. in Wichita, uh, going on 15 years now. So this is somewhat inspired by that, but not related to it. Unrelated, but very much inspired, and I wouldn't be a bit surprised if the FAA's uh, materials embraced the Bombardier one, since uh, they've been a co-sponsor along with the uh, NBAA and mm-hmm. TSB. Yeah, the Bombardier stand down for several years now, but the focus is on thinking, human factors, decision making, uh, things that go trip in our brains rather than things that go break in our airplanes. Uh, and when it comes down to it, that continues to be the biggest uh, failure point we have in general aviation is things that go trip in our brains so or trip up our brains. Yeah, there you go. So is there? Uh, where can people find out, in addition to the Sun and Fun one, where can people attend these things? Uh, there's a link. Uh, is it? Is it? Okay, is, and... It's basically faasafety.gov backslash stand down. Okay, great. And we'll, of course, put that in the show notes along with all this other stuff. Terrific. And it's brand new puppy, too, just a couple of days old. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Finally, um, a shout-out that, that comes uh, to us uh, by way of a listener in the forums. Uh, listener Cessna Jockey uh, dropped this quick little note into the forums uh, about a, a cool airport restaurant that people might want to check out if they're in the area. Cessna Jockey writes today, uh, this is back in February he was writing, today I ate at Area 51 uh, located at North Texas Regional Grayson County Airport, which is uh, Kilo Golf Yankee India. Uh, They serve hamburgers, chicken sandwiches, fries, onion rings, and such. The food was pretty good and the service was great. They're located on the southeast corner of the airport with airplane parking in front. I will return there. Cessna Jockey writes. For a, for a restaurant at some rinky-dink uh, uh, location anywhere in Texas, they have a really cool website. Do they really? Yeah. Their yeah. website is uh, area51texas.com. And uh, go and check that out. And if you're in the area and looking for a place to go have lunch, check out Area 51 at the Grayson County Airport uh, in, te- North, uh, in North Texas. Anyways. All right. That's it. That's, that's more than enough. Dave Higdon, uh, it's great talking with you as always. Dave is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, alfbuyer.com, aea.net, aviationsafetymagazine.com, and uh, a couple of places that I can't point the general public to anymore. It's (laughs) intriguing. And Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the Internet? AviationSafetyMagazine.com, JEBurnside.com, AveWeb.com occasionally, AEA.net occasionally, uh, and or the Google. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. Thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan and Rice Earl and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. We're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much, just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. 
And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the new improved blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, did you have something you wanted to say? Live old and prosper by going up in an airplane because time spent flying in an airplane is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. But no more ground school. AMF. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.